You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. I'm Georgia Hart, Principal Consultant at Middleton Executive and your guest host. I'm passionate about all things product and tech and can't wait to explore some amazing topics with Australia's top product leaders. Joining me today is Amanda Ralph. Amanda is a successful product strategist and leader who has a passion for creating and developing market-leading commercial and customer value through building and designing products and services that customers love. Amanda has worked in some of Australia's leading public and private companies, including Qantas, NAB, KPMG, and Medibank. She is currently the Principal Product Manager of Retirement Products for Australia's largest profit-for-member superannuation funds, Australia Super. Not only that, but she is an active member of the Australian and global product community, including six years as a leading the product ambassador and co-founding Products Women Australia, which now has 6,000 members, both national and internationally. Welcome to the Product Edge, Amanda. Good morning, Georgia. Lovely to be here. Um, Can you take a moment just to introduce yourself to the Product Edge listeners? Look, I've been in product for quite a long time now, and I think, um, like many people, I I fell into the role of product manager. I started actually as an academic in my first career iteration, and then I moved overseas and took a strategic marketing role for a big financial uh, telecommunications company and then a financial services company. And in that financial services uh, company, they asked me, in addition to my marketing role, to Um, take on some portfolio rationalisation for some legacy products and also look at optimising some of the products. We acquired another bank and so there was this huge proliferation of products in the portfolio and that was really my first foray into product management and I really fell in love with it. I love the chase of finding value, value for customers, value for the um, organisation and um, ever since then I've been you know, refining my product management skills and practice. And it's the other thing I love about the community is there's such a great opportunity to uh, work and collaborate with people and learn from others um, across the world, which is which is the remarkable thing. And today we're talking about OKRs, which is a very exciting topic to dive into. Um, I was doing a little bit of research in preparation for today and um, I read through Google that, you know, only 16% of knowledge workers say that companies or their companies are effective at setting and communicating company goals. So just for those who may not know about OKRs, can you give us a brief overview of what they are and why they're important? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Google have kind of been sort of the leading company that's used OKRs in setting the O stands for objectives and the uh, the K and the R are key results, so objectives and key results. I think um, where they're really effective and where they're done well, what they do is they focus the collective effort on an outcome 
um, as opposed to an output. And Marty Kagan talks a, a lot about this, about moving from an output feature factory type dynamic into an outcome value-based dynamic. And that's where OKRs can be really, really useful and helpful in um, aligning and bringing everyone focused around a common purpose, a common outcome and common objective. They're hard to do, though, and I think um, one of the challenges is that they, they require practice and they require iteration, and I think sometimes people um, or organisations run at OKRs thinking they're going to be this magic panacea that's going to change um, overnight the way uh, teams set objectives and goals, and yet they actually take, you know, they take they take practice, they take um, failure. You know, you need to you need to fail at them. I think, and sometimes to to learn. Okay, that didn't quite work the way we wanted it to. So, what do we need to do now um, to refine that? But I think, in terms of um, setting really clear, common objectives that a team or a squad can rally around and focus on and prioritize, they can be incredibly effective. And that was certainly my experience at Qantas. Yeah, and I think that's what I like about OKRs. It's getting everyone moving in the same direction and allowing people to come back to the same goal of what they want to achieve. Um, a lot of people do talk about OKRs as actually being counterproductive <laughs> and can create a bit of friction. Can you share a time when you've seen successful outcomes from OKRs, perhaps when you were at Qantas? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that they do is I think if you think about the market and the way the market has changed in the last decade in particular, um, there's a lot more agility required for organisations to respond to changing business need, to respond to changing customer need. And I think that OKRs work well in that context of that need for greater agility and where organisations have, have actually started to transform the way they work and work in a um, more agile context in the true sense of the word. Um, I think that certainly what I found at Qantas Hotels when I started there and one of the reasons I was, I was brought into that role was to help drive and refine the OKR approach was that um, what happens in a lot of organisations was the OKRs had proliferated and they'd kind of gone back to what, you know, more traditional goals and KPIs can be, which was a spreadsheet with, you know, tens, tens, potentially hundreds of different OKRs, which, again, drives you down the same path of becoming sort of more feature output focused, um, having this long to-do list or wish list that you're then trying to prioritise. Whereas when they work well, you have a very narrow, um, small set of OKRs. And what we did was we redesigned them so that we had two to three max strategic level OKRs for the organisation of Qantas Hotels, which we set at an annualised kind of level. So they really... Um, related to the mission and the vision of the organisation in terms of key objectives. And they were very, very aspirational. And those then formed the foundation for the squads to then go away and similarly set their OKRs, their objectives that would um, help deliver to those organisational objectives. And each squad 
may have only two or three OKRs that they were then working on and focused on. But they did that on a quarterly cadence and we found that, again, for the, the squad-level OKRs, that cadence was a really important thing. If the cadence is too short, and Christina Wadke talks about this um, really, really well, that, you know, if, if it's something that you can achieve in a week or a, or a month, you're really not trying hard enough. It's not aspirational enough. Um, a quarter, I found, um, was a good cadence, was a good cycle for teams to have an objective that was aspirational enough but that also um, gave them enough time to actually deliver to some of those key results. Um, and those key results can be um, start to have sort of lead and lag measures within them as well so that you're starting to get some of the key results might not materialise till much further down the sort of business cycle, but you can have some lead indicators in those key results that give you a sense of whether you're actually on track or being successful in meeting those outcomes. So I think um, probably one call out is keep them you know, if you're starting to proliferate your OKRs, that's a bit of a signal that something's not going, going to plan, that you need to step back and review um, how you framed up your OKRs. Do you have too many? Are there the right things? Um, what we found at Qantas, and it is hard, it takes practice, but we started getting objectives that I just called getting stuff done. They were like, we're going to release an app or we're going to release... Um, this version of, you know, the landing page or we're going to redesign the checkout page. That's just getting stuff done. That takes you back down a feature factory pathway. Your OKRs should um, have some element of behavioural change in them that you're trying to drive. So some kind of qualitative um, outcome to them. So, um, I'm just trying to think of a good example, but the, the key results then feed up. So your key result, you you it might be that you have um, that that you want to deliver a um, you know a seamless checkout experience for customers, um, which enables them to find you know the accommodation of their choice first time every time. Um, and then some of your key results would be things like um, attrition rates in the conversion funnel, dropout rates, um, rebooking rates, uh, you know, repeat bookings, um, average length of stay. You can start to drive some qualitative um, metrics into that um, into that outcome, and that's a lot different from saying I'm going to redesign the checkout page well okay so what has that actually done anything in terms of changing behavior has it added any value to the customer has it added any value to the business you need to be constantly stress testing whether the okr on the um what is is properly defined yeah, I love that because that's something that we definitely work on at Middleton Executive is setting up like our big goals, our small goals, and then, um, you know, trying to not fall into that trap of a to-do list because to-do lists are never ending. I have lists for my to-do list. <laughs> so um, definitely, I think setting, I like that it's very much more outcome focused as opposed to output and changing that. 
Um, are there any times when OKRs definitely don't work or perhaps can be a bit of a waste of time? Yeah, I think that they are really challenging in an organisation that is um, really not agile in ways of working. So I think if you're finding yourself in, a, in an enterprise that is very, you know, waterfall and traditional in its approach, that OKRs are going to be really hard to mobilise the business around um, because it's very hard to get traction and actually, um, you know, the whole idea of an OKR is to drive that focus and priority and reduce the noise of everything else that's on your wish list or things that you should be doing and actually deliver to those things that you've identified as being the primary um, priority and, and focus. And I think if you're in a organization that hasn't really transformed or adapted to a more agile way of working that that's going to be very difficult I also am not a fan of OKRs um, for individuals I think OKRs will work really well when you've got some strategic level directional um, OKRs set um, that are you know just one or two OKRs and then your teams and squads work to uh, realizing the outcomes within those through their own OKRs, I don't, I, I don't, I haven't seen an example of where it works really well on an individual basis. Um, and I also think that we need to be really careful to distinguish between OKRs and their value in driving to outcome and commercial and customer outcomes versus individual performance you know performance goals um, and development plans I think those things are separate you can you can have an individual development plan that is essentially aligned to the things that are in your OKR but I haven't seen an individual OKR working yeah that kind of leads on to my next question then if if OKRs are suitable for any size business because you know, we work with a lot of startups at Middleton Executive that are five, six people in a business. Is that going to work compared to a company that is, I don't know, the size of Australian Super or KPMG? Yeah, I think they're great for startups. I think um, startups, you know, generally are um, in those more collaborative, agile type models. And I think particularly if you're in a sort of software type setting where, you um, you want to change the focus from shipping, you know, I want from shipping software and getting stuff done to actually experimenting and learning and, and driving the value in the product that you're building and developing, then I think OKRs work exceptionally well. I think in some large organisations such as, um, you know, Australian Super, it's a little bit more of a challenge, but I think that they can be useful in framing specific um, priorities within a portfolio or priorities within a particular customer need. So if I look at something like retirement, which is, you know, a growing market in Australia, I think OKRs can be very useful in really becoming focused around uh, what, what is the, the customer or, in the case of our fund, member need that we're, we're starting to define and what are things that are going to give us the biggest value in solving for those problems. So I think that's the other thing for me when I look at OKRs um, 
as a framework, I think they're exceptionally useful, but I also use them um, with things like the jobs to be done framework so that I'm making sure that I'm really clear about what is the need that I'm trying to solve for. Um, because if that's not well defined, then it doesn't matter how good your OKR is crafted, you're essentially missing the point of, of you know, solving for something that customers care about or value. The other thing is, and, and Jeff Gol, Gol, Goelf talks about this as well, is that um, OKRs also work exceptionally well when you've got continuous discovery. And I think that's something that is really important. It's another thing that we developed um, and matured at Qantas Hotels. It was already there in foundation, but we built it out as we as we developed the OKR framework, that continuous discovery cycle, so that you're constantly experimenting, validating, sense-checking. Is this the right thing to focus on? Is there value here? Am I solving for something that matters to customers? Um, that's also going to drive commercial value. And it gives you that ability to pivot when you find if the answer is no to those things, that you can pivot quickly and reshift your focus. And that's the other advantage of the quarterly cycle. Um, if you're running those things in parallel in a good cadence, um, it gives you much greater ability to pivot and shift if the market changes or if um, the customer need changes. And, and one example for us at Qantas Hotels was, um, you know, a global pandemic who could have foreseen it hit the business, you know, a travel business when travel was shutting down. And um, one of the things we pivoted on was developing a new payment um, capability unique to Qantas Hotels and Holidays, which gave customers much more flexibility and certainty around their booking in terms of being able to secure their booking for accommodation using a deposit, either cash or Qantas points, um, and then having the flexibility to um, cancel that booking up to, I think, as close as um, 48 hours prior to check-in. Because, you know, if you recall, and it still goes on today, when things are shifting, I've booked accommodation and then all of a sudden I can't go and, you know, it was all very... Um, frustrating for customers and, and frustrating for our suppliers as well, whereas the payment deposit pay that we developed, um, which we did on the back of that OKR cycle and that customer discovery, um, gave us gave our suppliers more certainty, gave our customers more certainty and reassurance, and um, was the uptake of it was exceeded our expectations, which showed that there was definitely a latent need and no one else was really addressing it. It was also that ability to use points or cash or a combination of the two, which was a real differentiator in market to other providers. Yeah, that's definitely been, I guess, a struggle for everybody, whether you're wanting to go on holiday, whether you're, you know, someone that works in the travel industry, everyone's been hit hard from that aspect. Yes. And I can't imagine what it would have been like working in a travel company during this time, but congratulations to you for making it through. Yeah. Um, you touched on earlier about um, OKRs, I guess, being able to adapt to customer needs. I talked in a previous episode about how, the goals that you're setting 
should align with business needs and the customer need because we're all in business for the same reason, most of us. Can OKRs be set for business strategy as well or should they always be customer-led? I think they should be customer-led, but I think in the key results, um, that's where the business value starts to come through. So if they're customer-led but you don't have a commercial metric, that actually underpins what success looks like for for meeting that customer need, then um, it probably is telling you that it's not the right thing to be focused on. Um, I'm just trying to think of a a practical example of that. I mean, one of the things I always like like to stress test when I'm designing products as well is, you know, customer willingness to pay. So, um, you know, Something might be fantastic and um, customers say, yes, I I love that that idea and that sounds like an amazing product or service. And then when you you hone hone in and say, okay, well, how much are you willing to pay for this? Because there's a commercial cost of delivering this. Um, Then you start to get a sense of whether or not this is going to be commercially viable. And I I get asked the question from people who work in, um, you know, like, like myself, I'm working in a profit for member where our profits all go back to our membership. We don't have shareholders per se. And people who work in government agencies where they're, you know, they have a, a sort of social obligation, I guess, or in terms of their service delivery. Um, those things might not have the same profit driver, but they still have a strong com- underlying commercial metric. So you still need to know whether or not you're delivering something below cost, at cost, um, with some profit, where regardless of where that profit then ultimately is fed back to, um, you might be delivering a government service um, that actually is costing money and not making profit. But what it might be doing is downstream removing, um, for example, long-term health costs. You know, there might be some work that a, a, an agency is doing that helps people achieve better health comes health outcomes today, which might cost a lot of money, but downstream you've essentially saved the system millions of dollars with adverse outcomes. So you should still be able to quantify and put that quant- quantitative measure to, um, you know, the outcome that you're looking to deliver. I don't know if that's answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely has. Um, and from your experience, given that you've worked in, you know, product-focused companies, consultancies, and now, you know, big enterprise, what are some of the challenges that you've seen when setting OKRs in enterprise companies compared to the smaller organisations? And, you know, is it a case of getting everybody on board? Like, it must be hard getting tens of thousands of people to set a, a direction of, or, or a goal. <laughs> compared to a team of five? Yeah, I think that's the real challenge is getting alignment and getting stakeholders um, on board. I think, and Christina Watke talks about this as well, is, um, you know, a way to overcome sort of that challenge is to to start small. So don't necessarily um, advocate for going enterprise-wide in this massive rollout. You can start with a team that is... Um, good at what they do, that is keen to experiment, to try new ways of working and try new things and and suited to sort of the OKR cycle and work with them. And and through that, you can start to demonstrate to the business the value 
of that approach in in certain contexts. Um, I w- it was interesting. I was talking. I was listening to a, a conversation um, online around OKRs and people saying that um, they'd had organisations that had tried to use them to remediate, if you like, the, the non-performers. I think that's that's doomed for failure. I think start with the people that you know are really talented and successful at what they do um, and that can adapt to the new ways of trying things and really start to show um, I mean, I think we showed that at Qantas. What what it was really successful in doing was cutting out a lot of the other noise, cutting out, um, you know, that wish list and getting people really focused and collaborating around a common focus and common outcome. And OKRs should be aspirational. There should be a stretch element to them as well. Um, if they're really, really easy to achieve, then they're probably not set at the right level. Um, but talented people love that challenge. They love that um, opportunity to come come together and collaborate and work with other equally talented people around something that is quite challenging and aspirational. Um, I think the other thing is that OKRs in themselves don't also... Uh, magically remove the need for all the other, you know, BA, what, whatever you want to call it, BAU, continuous improvement, uh, you know, product debt is real, tech debt is real, um, things that just have to be done, you know, for compliance. I, I live in a very compliance-driven world in my, you know, in my role today. There's stuff that just has to happen um, and OKRs, you know, don't work independently of that in the sense that you still have to make time and capacity for the business to do the other things that need to happen. And things like product debt and tech debt should also be equally managed and prioritised in terms of your planning and resourcing to get those things done. So on that then, how can people ensure that they're setting good quality OKRs? Like what can we learn from Maybe some of the OKRs that didn't work for you. <laughs> um, I think proliferation, if they're starting to proliferate, that's definitely a red flag. I think um, time constraint. So don't get too obsessed with the perfect OKR, and I'm guilty of that as well, you know, early days trying to craft the perfect OKR, the perfect objective, the perfect care results, and you can waste a lot of time with that. I think um, practice makes perfect. So just even in the process of practicing, get a regular cadence going. Um, we would do them quarterly and then we'd have a review process that we tried to contain and keep quite short and sharp. Um, again, it's kind of if there's too much focus on perfecting and refining, then really you're losing the value of the OKR, which is focused on um, solving the right problems for the right commercial and customer outcomes. So we time box those things. It's okay, we've got an hour and a half um, at the end of this quarter to to assess. That also be through stand-ups or retros, um, a weekly cadence of just checking in, how are we travelling to this OKR? You know, do we feel like this is still relevant? Are we, you know, seeing those key results that we've set? Are we seeing any of those measures starting to flow through? but keep it short and sharp. 
um, if you're starting to get into, you know, three-hour workshops to <laughs> assess, review, then I think it's time to, to step back and think about the process. Uh, and then when resetting um, the OKRs for the next quarter, they would be slightly longer sessions, but I guess we would um, try and have that work done by the, the, the product managers or, you know, the squad leads um, to do that as a collaborative exercise and then come into a collective where, again, it would be fairly time-boxed out of, um, you know, deliberately doing that. And I think that's the other thing. Um, OKRs only work in the context of where you've got empowered teams. And Marty Kagan talks about this a lot in his, both in Inspired and his, you know, follow-up um, book, Empowered, which is um, you need to be able to trust and empower your teams to define these OKRs and then actually go out and, and, and run at them and achieve them. And if you're going to be in an operating environment where that empowerment is not at play, then I wouldn't suggest even starting down this journey. Yeah, no, I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, giving people the opportunity to go out and achieve things the way they need to do them. And so I think that's what I've loving seeing. I've loved to watch change in the work landscape and especially in the last couple of years, how much people have so much more autonomy now in their roles. And maybe that's down to people setting OKRs. They know what they need to achieve and then they need to go out and do what they need to do to achieve that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting time to be in product for sure. I know um, a lot of our listeners would like to know a little bit more about you, Amanda. Can you share with us one of your greatest achievements in your career to date? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I do look back at the time at Qantas and working with an amazing team of people, um, not just the product team, but, you know, the engineering team, the UX team, just such incredible talent and the way that that business mobilised and came together in the midst of COVID um, and what that was, you know, doing to the business. I'm very proud of that and um, having played a, a small part in that um, success and that, you know, that outcome. I think, um, but if I look back um, on my career to date, the thing that I feel is my biggest challenge, biggest success is really the people and the amazing talent that I've been privileged to have in my teams and watching them grow in their capability and playing a small role in coaching them and helping them um, become more empowered, become more confident in their role as product managers. And that I think is my greatest achievement. I love that. I've just started mentoring myself and it's makes you realize how much you know and how much yeah. knowledge you can actually pass on. <laughs> Get us rid of that imposter syndrome for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's been one of the biggest obstacles that you've had to overcome? Uh, I was going to say imposter syndrome. It's, it's kind <laughs> of, um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's allowing yourself the sort of um, vulnerability to acknowledge what you don't know. Um, and there's a lot that you don't know and continually learning and growing and exploring um, and overcoming. I think earlier in my career, and it's something I still actively have to manage, you know, it's this um, progress over perfection, which is what one of my great, um, you know, people leaders 
told me at one stage in my career is, you know, Amanda, progress over perfection. Don't be so focused on getting everything right the first time. Um, it's actually okay to be continuously improving and learning and to be vulnerable in that um, and put your hand up when you don't know the answer to something. So um, that doesn't sit naturally with me or um, sit easily with me. So it's been something that I've had to really deliberately um, and actively manage. And I've had a few failures along the way that have, you know, um, dented that sort of confidence, but I think they're the best learning opportunities as well. You can pick yourself up and go, okay, that wasn't my finest defining moment, but I'm going to dust myself off. I'm going to lick my wounds. Um, I'm going to take the time to wallow in the, you know, the sad feelings of that but then get up and actually reflect and go, okay, well, what should I have done differently or what could I have done differently yeah. and move on from that? I think that's the key thing is reflecting on it and, yeah, moving on as quickly as you can. I've definitely <laughs> wallowed in self-pity over some silly mistakes <laughs> I've made. Yeah. And that, you know, you forget about them eventually and, and everyone else does. Um, Amanda, it's been so amazing talking with you today and thank you for sharing all of your insights and experiences and knowledge around OKRs. How can the project, Product Edge listeners stay connected with you? Um, yeah, look, they uh, can join Product Women, which is um, the, the group that I um, co-founded with Adrienne Tan and Laura Cardinal. Um, and we, in the COVID world, are running lots of online events. Um, so you can find us on Meetup. Um, connect with me on LinkedIn. I also am quite an avid tweeter. So uh, I have a, a Twitter account, that product chick, and um, she tweets on all things product. So if you want to connect with me through, through that, I uh, also look forward to that conversation. I'll make sure that we add all of those links in the notes so that everyone can easily find you. And lastly, what would be your one piece of advice for product managers? I, I think... Uh, try and treat yourself like you would your product. And by that I mean um, iterating, continuously learning, continuously evolve. And um, there's just so many amazing people out there, so many incredible resources that we have at our fingertips these days. And I think for me it's constantly trying to um, challenge my thinking, look at the way I do things, and um, collaborate with the broader product community. And I think it's it's great for mental health, it's great professionally, um, and it just brings an edge to the skills that you bring to the challenges and problems that you're solving for day in, day out. I love that. I'm going to implement that in my <laughs> recruiting world. <laughs> um, thank you again, Amanda. It was great chatting to you and um, hope to chat to you again soon. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Georgia, and thanks to the Product Edge. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge, brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.